Please remain standing and pray with me. Come Holy Spirit now and touch the, the Word of God that you have already inspired and enliven it to us today through the preaching of your Word. Lord, grant me, the preacher of your Word, the ability to speak with clarity and conviction to open your heart to us this morning. Lord, let that be done through the unction of the Holy Spirit. Almighty God, we would pray that there would be something in this message for each one of us this morning, that some truth from the Scriptures would find root in our hearts and bring life and transformation. And Lord, in all of this, we pray that you would empower us to give you the praise and the honor and the glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Peter, I, I sound pretty hot. I don't know if it's me on the, the I know I look hot, but um, I'm sounding pretty hot on the mic, too. So. I hear scoffing disbelief. How about that? Um, well, folks, as your pastor at Christ Church, I, I think about the future a lot these days. It's on my mind a lot. I mean that I think about the future of Christ Church. Uh, God has laid a particular burden on my heart uh, that has been recurring over the past few weeks. I'm thinking about Christ Church uh, beyond the time I will be serving as your priest, which, God willing, will be a long, long time. Now, some of you may be praying against that, but <laughs> my desire is to be here for a long, long time. But the burden that I feel is about the sustainability, sustainability of Christ Church. I want this church to be around for years to come, as a Bible-believing, gospel-proclaiming, Jesus-loving, disciple-making church in the Anglican tradition. Now, St. Ebb's Church is a church of the Church of England in central Oxford in the United Kingdom. It's an Anglican parish, and it's a church very much as I just described. It's a gospel-proclaiming, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, disciple-making church in the Anglican tradition. That church, though, has been making disciples. It has been preaching the gospel since the 900s. Not the 1900s, the 900s. Think about it. That's before the Norman conquest, when Norman showed up and conquered England. No, no the, I'm sorry. There were eight people called the Normans that conquered England in 1066. That was when Ethelred was still the king of England, the gospel was being preached at St. Ebbs. That church is still alive and flourishing to this day. So that I know you can have a sustainable Anglican church that remains faithful to the gospel for at least 1,000 years. I have the evidence that shows that that can happen. Or we could go down to Beaufort, South Carolina. Not Beaufort, no, that's in North Carolina. Beaufort, South Carolina, and St. Helena Church in that area, that's been preaching the gospel for 300 years. It's still there to this day, making disciples, preaching the gospel. So that being the case, when I see a church packed to capacity like last Sunday, and when our children's ministry is starting to burst at the seams at Christ Church, I want to know how we can plan for a future where we can continue to make disciples and serve those whom God is sending us for generations to come, where we don't have to turn people away because, I'm sorry, we just don't have any more room here at Christ Church. You'll have to go somewhere else. So this morning, I want us to look at a couple of key passages from the Scriptures, from the Bible, about how God's people are to address the future. And as we go along through these passages, I want to make some applications based on that. 
Now, the first thing here I want you to know is that I realize that this is a very kind of meat and potatoes kind of message. It's a very, uh, you, might, you know, if you, if you say, well, you know, I already knew all that. Well, good. Praise God. You've been studying your Bible. But I hope that it will be nourishing to us anyway, just like meat and potatoes are nourishing. And secondly, by the way, if you are not a part of Christ Church, these points are applicable in your life as well. So these are transferable concepts. They're not just specific to the situation that we find ourselves in at Christ Church. Now, the, ver the first biblical text I want us to look at is that passage we heard from Jeremiah chapter 29 this morning. Let me give you a little back, uh, quick background, a little context for that passage of Scripture. It's in the year 597 B.C., so 597 years before Christ, just as God had warned His people through the prophet Jeremiah, the king Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, conquered Judah and Jerusalem and led the religious and political leaders of Jewish society away into captivity in the land of Babylon. And then sometime around the year 593 B.C., just a few years after that, Jeremiah writes this letter, which contains a word from the Lord. That, actually, it says a word from Yahweh, the God of Israel, to the Jewish exiles who are living in captivity in the, in the kingdom of Babylon. So that's our background for this passage, which begs the question, why would we even look at an ancient text that is directed to a bunch of people who were taken into captivity in Babylon for any kind of direction and application for the future of our local church. We do have to kind of ask questions like that. <clears throat> well, think about it. First of all, this letter, Jeremiah writes, is written to God's covenant people. And through Jesus Christ, we as the church are grafted into God's covenant promises as well. We are made His people through Jesus Christ. So this text is for us as God's covenant people. We are in continuity with that group of people hearing this text for the first time around the year 593 B.C. And then secondly, one of the key New Testament, one of the key New Testament metaphors for the church is that we are exiles in this world. We re had a reading from the book of James this morning. And James is addressed uh, at the very beginning in that first chapter of James to the, to the diaspora, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed throughout the world. Well, that's, uh, that he is actually not speaking to the 12 tribes of Israel. He is figuratively, he is speaking to them, but he's figuratively speaking to the church as it is dispersed throughout the world. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter likewise addresses the church as exiles. And that is a key New Testament metaphor. So the church is always, we are always an exile people as we await our homecoming when God's kingdom is fully revealed, when Christ returns in glory and His kingdom is fully manifest and, the, and righteousness rolls down like rivers and justice like never-ending streams. So we're in exile into that great day. Now, finally, to be in exile is, I mean, think about it. It means to be dispossessed. It means to be, it's, it's not just like being a refugee. A refugee is someone who is fleeing. An exile is someone who has had their lives destroyed, and then they're taken prisoner. It is to be dispossessed, to be at the mercy of those who, take, who have taken you into captivity. 
your future is far from secure, and you live in a state of precarious anxiety constantly. So arguing a, uh, I think it would be a fortiori, that's right. You learned this in, in your rhetoric class, right? A fortiori, what? It's not Italian pasta, okay? It just means arguing from a point of strength to a lesser point. From a strong point, if the strong point is true, then a, a lesser point, how much more would that be true? So if this, listen, if this passage provides guidance for a people who have such, listen, for, who, who have such an insecure and uncertain future, so if this is a passage for people living in that precarious situation as exiles in Babylon, surely it provides guidance for us who feel, maybe naively, perhaps naively feel, that our futures are fairly secure. In other words, if God cares about his, the future of his covenant people in 593 B.C. who were living in exile, don't you think he would care about his covenant people who were living in exile in 2018? So what is the specific guidance this passage gives in how exiles are to approach their future? Well, to begin with, to begin with, remember who holds the future. Remember who holds the future. Remember that God is ultimately sovereign and in control. Now, verse 4 of the passage from Jeremiah 29 we just heard might have slipped right by you, so let me read it again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, listen to what it says, to all the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar has sent into exile? No, that is not what that passage says. Listen, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. In other words, God addresses his, this word to people that he says, I am the one who instigated your exile into Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar is not shaping your future. Nebuchadnezzar does not hold your future. I, the sovereign God of Israel, am the one controlling your future. God is the one ruling the events of history. The king of Babylon was merely God's means of chastising, of correcting his people for their sinful rebellion, which they had been warned about generation after generation by Israel's prophets, saying, if you do not repent and return, God will take you from this land and away into captivity. And God used Nebuchadnezzar as the means of fulfilling that. So they were not the victims of random history. They're not the victims of fate. God's providence is still in control. And that same truth applies to us as well today. James Russell Lowell acknowledged this when our country's greatest crisis was upon us and the future of our republic seemed to be threatened by the pernicious institution of slavery. Before the Civil War, he wrote a poem called The Present Crisis, and some of you may have read that in high school as a part of your English uh, American literature classes. And in that poem, he writes this. Listen, it's about thinking about what it looks like in the present crisis. How does it look? Is future merely controlled by fate, or is there someone else behind the scene? Listen to what he writes. Careless seemed careless seems the great avenger. Careless seems the great avenger. History's pages but record one death grapple in the darkness twixt old systems and the word. Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne, 
And then listen to this. Yet that scaffold, that scaffold sways the future, and behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. Here is the point of application for us today. Like Israel, we are not on our own. God is the ruler of our futures individually and collectively as the body of Christ. Not events, not circumstances. So we can approach, that means, listen, Christ Church, we can approach the future without fear and anxiety because the future is not some random, random coruscation. Uh, I don't think that's a word. Random coalescence, coalescence, that's, that's a word, random coalescence. Or I'll just make one up, it suits. It, the future is not merely some random coalescence of events, but there is a God who rules the future. The next thing is, so, that it, so God is in control, but what specific direction does he have for the exiles? Well, he says this, this is it, ready? It's really complicated. God says to them, do life. Just do your life. Just because you are in extraordinary circumstances does not mean that you stop attending to the ordinary routines of daily living. So many of us think that normal Christian living is to go from one roller coaster high to another roller coaster high. Well, folks, that's not Christian living. In fact, I don't think that sounds like Christian maturity at all to me. Christian living, a lot of Christian living, listen, is merely being faithful in the ordinary. Christian living, a lot of time, is being merely faithful in the ordinary. And sometimes, as immature Christians, we think life for, for our Christian life to have value, meaning, purpose, that if it's really real, it needs to be extraordinary all the time. Well, I wish it was, but I think it would just tire me out. Sometimes, in fact, maybe most of the time, what it means to be a Christian is to follow Christ faithfully in the ordinariness of our lives. And so God tells those exiles living in captivity in Babylon, build houses. Build houses. Don't just live in tents. Build houses and live in them plant gardens, and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear, bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. We may be tempted at times to see our collective or individual situations, uh, situations as a church, situations as, individual, as individuals, situations as families, as being times of crisis. And maybe we should do something extraordinary. Maybe we should ignore the mundane realities of life and just have one long prayer meeting until Jesus comes back. No, that is not what exiles do. Carry on with life. Go to work. Build houses. Settle down for the long term. Have a bunch of babies. Amen. So as we plan for our future, God tells us to live fully in the present. As we plan for our future, live fully in the present. C.S. Lewis, you knew it had to happen. There is always a C.S. Lewis quote. Is, all, is, do you, is the only thing you read being C.S. Lewis? It seems that way sometimes, yes. 
He wrote a lot of good stuff. But Lewis Rice, and actually it's a sermon that he preached in 1939. It was the beginning of World War II in England. He preaches a sermon at Oxford University in, an, in a university chapel, and the sermon was entitled Learning in Wartime. And basically, he gives students at Oxford University at the beginning of World War II a, a definitive event that shaped the course of the 20th century. He gives them basically the same advice that God gives the exiles living in captivity, carry on with normal life. Lewis writes this, he says, Before I became a Christian, I do not think I fully realized that one's life after conversion would inevitably consist in doing most of the same things one had been doing before. One hopes in a new spirit, but still the same things. The next thing that the scripture reveals to us here is don't become exclusively inwardly focused. If we are thinking about our future, a lot of times we will become uh, inwardly focused. We will become insular, thinking only about our own situation. Don't disconnect, God tells the exiles, from the needs of those around you. Remember your surrounding community and that we exist to serve them as the hands and feet of Christ. This is what uh, the, the Lord speaks to those exiles. Verse 7, Jeremiah 29. But seek the welfare. The word there in Hebrew is seek the welfare. Seek the shalom, the total well-being, economically, familially, infrastructure, every part of society, the whole thing, the shalom, the well-being, relationships between our community, relationships with God. Seek the shalom of the city where I have sent you into exile. Now think about that. God is saying, look, you have been hauled off. You've lost everything you had in this horrible war with Nebuchadnezzar. Everything that you knew has been lost. You've probably lost lives. Members of your family have died. And now you're in captivity. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to pursue the shalom of the community into which you have been exiled. And if God desires that for those exiles, don't you think he desires it for us as well? Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare, for you will find your shalom in its shalom. Then finally, and then going on, realize that God is more concerned about your future than you are. We tend to think about this in a way that we're carrying the weight of all of this on our own shoulders. But the scripture tells us that God is more concerned about our future than we are. That God has a, yes, a wonderful plan for his exiled covenant community, but that future is, listen, directly connected to prayer and the wholehearted pursuit of God. God's wonderful plan for the exiles in 593 B.C. and God's wonderful plan for exiles living in 2018 still are dependent on this, that we seek the Lord wholeheartedly. Again, listen to what this scripture says. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for shalom, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. And some of us have that probably calligraphied in our house somewhere, out of context. But there's a verse that follows that. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your, hope, well, with all your heart. God desires to bless the future of our heart, of our, excuse me, of our church as we walk in obedience to him. Here's the point of application. 
God does have a plan and a desire to bless. I am convinced that God has a wonderful plan for the future of our local church, and not just us as collectively, but for you individually. A plan to bless us and not to harm us. A plan to give us hope and a future. But here it is. Listen, we cannot, we cannot know that plan. We cannot find it without seeking Him with all our hearts. If we have a divided heart, that future will remain opaque. And we can choose the wrong way. We can choose the wrong path. Single-hearted devotion. And we heard that, we heard that taken to a, an entirely uh, new level in the gospel passage this morning. R radical sayings from Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ about, unit, uh, about a, a single-hearted devotion and commitment to Him that makes every other loyalty look like hatred in comparison to the love that we bear for Him. Now, the second passage of Scripture that speaks to where we are right now, I think, as Christ Church, comes to us from James chapter 4. Listen to that again. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town, spend a year there, and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Wow, we've really seen that this week. What is your life? For you are a mist, you are a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. This passage is directly related to planning for the future. And it tells us the way faithful followers of Christ are to plan. And the first thing here that I want us to recognize is this, listen that planning is not an unspiritual thing to do. In fact, you may be thinking right now, why are we talking about planning and not something spiritual? Well, according to the Scriptures, planning is not an unspiritual activity. Sometimes believers over-spiritualize the Christian life. In other words, in this case, we reject wise planning as being, if we, if we say, you know what, we need to do some wise and godly planning here, somehow that is a demonstration of a lack of faith. The attitude runs something like this. Oh, don't worry about planning for your retirement or when you cannot work anymore. God will take care of you. Just pray about it. Now, um, uh, Cornell, this is your uh, commercial an announcement. Cornell is a financial plan. But this attitude, listen, this attitude forgets that part of how God provides for our future is by granting us godly wisdom. God did not put that stuff in your head just to keep your, your ears from meeting in the middle. He gave you a mind, and we are to love the Lord our God with all our mind. So wisdom, godly planning, is a Christian endeavor. God cares so much about wisdom that there, there is an entire book of the Old Testament devoted to it, the book of Proverbs. But both James and Proverbs clearly reveal that God's people do not plan in a vacuum. We plan with God at the very center of the process. It is always a position of dependence. We prayed it this morning in the opening collect. Almighty God, for, without you it is impossible to please you. And Do you hear the dependence in that? Without you it is impossible to please you. Without you, even though you call us to be wise, we can't wisely plan for the future. And so Proverbs chapter 16, verse 3 reads this. I'm going to just quote you some Proverbs here. 
Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Do you see the connection between bringing our plans, our desires, our, our interrogatories about the future to God, commit that to Him, and God will establish our plans as long as He is at the center of that process. Again, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Maybe you memorized this as a new Christian. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Now, when it says do not lean on your own understanding, it does not mean don't think about it. It just means that your understanding does not support itself. It needs to have a buttress, and that buttress is in relationship with God. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. And then finally, Proverbs 16, 9, the heart of a person plans her ways but the Lord establishes her steps. The heart of a person plans her ways, but the Lord establishes her steps. We, who is it that ultimately directs our path? God directs our path. And we need, we need to keep Him at the center of our deliberation. So the biblical principle here is that we plan for the future, but we seek God's guidance at every step of the way, and in the end, all our plans are put on the altar. Now, folks, this might seem, again, meat and potatoes, but it is something every single one of us deals with on a daily basis. We take everything that we have planned for and we say, Lord, all my plans for the future, and this happens more often than not. People think that their future is going to end up a particular way. They have their golden years ahead of them, they think, and, and everything is going to just turn out in a certain way. They've got a spreadsheet. They have a timetable. But brothers and sisters, let me tell you, we do not know the future. All of our futures are contingent on God's sovereignty. So we say, Lord, this all belongs to you. Your will be done. So we plan with an attitude of submission to and humility before God. Lord, here is our best plan, but we submit our agendas and our lives to you. So where do we need to direct the application of these principles at Christ Church right now. This is where the rubber hits the road. Now, this might not be interesting to you, but it is really interesting to me. I have, first of all, a and I think this is shared, and I think it's from the Lord, a tremendous sense of urgency about ministry to our children, ministry to our kids. More and more children are coming, and the ones we have are getting older every day. We are severely limited on space devoted to Christian formation that accommodates our growing number of kids. How are we going to deal with that? This is something that I actually, it does keep me up. I don't think the answer is just to tell parents, sorry, we're full here. You're just going to have, have to go, you're going to have to go somewhere else. We need to seek God for his direction in regard to our burgeoning children's ministry. And if we're not praying for that, we are remiss. Even if you aren't a parent, even if you've never been a parent, you, by virtue, if you're a part of this congregation, every time a little one comes up here and their parents swear before God at the moment of their baptism to raise them in the faith, and we put that little naked baby in the font. Yeah, we do that here. We put that little naked baby in the font and pour water all over them and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son. It's really cute. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we always promise at Christ Church that we will do all in our power to raise that child in Christ. And so how are we going to do that? We all need to be praying about that. The second thing is, I think, and I, I see I have a deep burden for this, 
I, I, I sense a needing, uh, a sense of needing a plan for growth, a plan for growth. We have just sent out at Christchurch, you may not know this, but we just sent out another group of folks to plant yet another congregation, Louisville Parish. In fact, many of our people are at Louisville Parish this morning because our music minister, Jim Reed, his uh, first grandchild uh, is being baptized. Uh, is, is, is it Timothy James? Timothy J- I just call him Lemon Drop. It's Timothy James Lemon, and I call him Lemon Drop. Timothy James is being baptized there this morning. And so we've just sent out a new group of people. And yet more and more frequently, our church on Sunday morning is packed. I strongly sense that in this season, now here's, here's where, I hear, where I hear God leading, that we do not send out yet another congregation. The, and again, I need to offer this up to God, and I have, and I offer it up to uh, our council of advice and other leaders of the church for discernment. But the sense that I have from God is that the mama church needs to be strengthened and be allowed to grow, to be robust when we send out a new group. Not to send out again when we're 170, maybe when we're 250. So we are going to need, hear me, we're going to need, brothers and sisters, your prayerful input over the next few months on how our building and facilities are serving or hindering our mission and our ministry at Christ Church. We need every faithful attender of Christ Church to give their input on how ministry and mission is affected by our facilities and our real property here. We're going to need your input regarding how our facilities affect disciple-making at Christ Church and your own personal discipleship. So look for a request. We're going to send you out a questionnaire. That sounds thrilling, I know. It's going to come out in the parish notes this coming week. And we're going to ask you for your input because we need not just leaders, we need every person at Christ Church to begin thinking about that and praying about that. And so this morning, I can't think of a better way of beginning this process, whether you are a member of Christ Church and this is your home church or this is just a church you're visiting this Sunday because your church is underwater somewhere else in North Carolina. I can't think of a better way of beginning to orient ourselves to God's future than with this great prayer from the Book of Common Prayer, a prayer of self-dedication. And I would ask that you pray this with me this morning. Let's go to God in prayer. Almighty and eternal God, so draw our hearts to Thee, so guide our minds, so fill our imaginations, so control our wills, that we may be wholly Thine, utterly dedicated unto thee, and then use us, we pray, as thou wilt, and always to thy glory and the welfare of thy people, through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I invite you at this